I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Places, everyone, it's time for The, the Connor, Connor and Smith Show! Thank you, Places! So tonight we're talking to Allie Curran, who was the playwright who worked with us on Silver Bells. Ding, 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 ding. Now known as The Silver Bells. Bum, 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 bum. With BroadwayLicensing.com. So please, if you are a small theater uh, that's looking for a unit set small cast production, look up this show. We've got a great show for you. Um, Allie uh, is also one of the founding members of the Welders Playgroup in uh, DC. She's very prolific. We are great friends with her. We love that she joined us for this interview. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Right back. Hello. Hi, Allie. Hey, darling. How are you? Good. Good. Hey. Hey, Maddie. I'll be the raspy voice in the oh, room. Okay. Oh, that's, Fair enough. That's, that's Eddie Spaghetti. Hi, Eddie. Sorry. Okay. How are the boys? <laughs> Loud. Oh, bless their hearts. Is there any other way to live? <laughs> no. No. You need to be... So my, I, my daughter had a dream last night that we had another kitten. I'm like... And I had the same dream. I'm like, okay, maybe we should get another cat. You know, why not? Right. You, you can never have uh, too many. No, I, got, I, I already have one dog, two cats. And why, why not a third? Why not? <laughs> so uh, before we go down um, some sort of career dropping, um, Allie, where are you from? North Carolina. From North Carolina. That's right. Yeah. Why don't you talk, just talk a little bit about your journey. I know that you are a huge inspiration for anyone who's a writer, an actor, and someone who, you know, wants to make a living at uh, their craft. So what was your journey? Did you, you start out as a writer or an actor or? I, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, uh, writing and acting were on separate and parallel tracks for a long time. Um, I was I was a writer first. I mean, as a child, like when I could spell, um, I was writing stories and poetry. And I, I finished my first quote unquote novel at the ripe old age of fourth grade. Um, I think it was 78 pages long. Uh, and I would just write by myself, you know, to amuse myself, all these novels and stories and things like that for years. Um, acting was a separate thing for me. The two were not really uh, intended to ever come together in any way and I acted all through my teen years and college etc uh, and it really wasn't until graduate school uh, that I just for giggles took a play the under, undergraduate playwriting class because I had you know an elective or something and uh, the playwriting professor there Doug Grissom from UVA he was the first person who said Ali you really need to be a playwright and for me writing had always been a private thing it wasn't something that was public my acting was public um, and I, I just sort of listened to him and kind of took it in and wrote a play that got picked up and premiered. And it was just one of those really great light bulb moments in my life when my, my subterranean private life of writing and my extrovert career of acting kind of came together and, and, and had they've been married ever since. Now, 
uh, I'm, I'm talking for everyone out there who's listening. I'm trying to inspire and because uh, I know it's so hard for all of us sometimes to find inspiration in moments when we feel like we um, don't aren't doing our craft or we feel like we aren't inspired to keep working or writing. Now, what is the journey for something after you write it? Do you write something because someone asked you to? Or do you try to, or do you write something and then try to get someone to like it and do it? I think you start out doing the latter. You write what you want to, uh, uh, to, to write about. You write the stories that, meet, that matter something to you, that you feel a fire in your belly to communicate to the world. And then you, you know, then after that, you seek collaboration and you seek uh, production and all that good stuff. Once you, I, my journey anyway was once I had enough of that behind, under my belt as it were, then people would come in and ask me to do things on commission. So the commissioned work uh, came later, but it's, and it's, uh, it's, I've been lucky because I've had a lot of commissioned work. Um, I, I think the way into uh, a piece of work that somebody else asks you to write is very different than your way into your own, a privately generated work. Um, but the thing that they both have in common is that, uh, is the love that you have for the subject. And I think that when you, when, when the story comes entirely from you, it's born with love. Uh, when you are given a, a commission and asked to do a specific project around a topic or a subject or something, you have to find a way to love it. Um, but they both, if, in my experience anyway, they both have to have, have to be loved as topics to be meaningful and important to be t uh, told theatrically. When you have a question, Stephen, sorry. No, I just, I, I. Yeah, Stephen, do you want to talk? Yeah, I do want to get a word in, Matthew. No, this is my girlfriend. <laughs> girlfriend I miss you guys. Um, we miss you too. <laughs> oh, sorry, Stephen. Go ahead. I can't remember what I was going to say. Um, well, think about it. It it is interesting when the idea comes from you and you it is your love versus when someone says write this yeah. for me, and how it really sometimes can take several di different approaches to kind of get into it. Yeah. Um, and I'm just speaking of, I mean, we kind of, the three of us and Warren all kind of created the world of Silver Bells. I wasn't totally like into it because I didn't know what it was yet. We were making it up. Well, what, is, what is it now? It's right. still made up. <laughs> and, and it kept changing too, because that, that was a long journey because, right, I didn't even know, I didn't know Matt when we signature uh, match made us to work on this idea that was somebody else's idea and we, right. we it had so many iterations and, and it, it became so many things until we found a way to kind of metabolize it with our creativity and then it became the play and then you stevie you came in and, and warren came in and the four of us together would have to be in a room bouncing ideas off each other and playing stuff and and just really turning it into a, a sort of a, a gymnastic um a workout of creativity to for, for silver bells to become the thing that it ultimately became but we did have to find it we really did it it was i remember at one point making like a fake map of the town <laughs> um, God, I've forgotten that. To try to understand or or come up with things to talk about that were in the town. Yeah. Um, and please forgive us, uh, listeners. Eddie Spaghetti has chosen this very moment to get a squeaky toy because why not? <laughs> um, he is he's the master foley for our radio show. Oh, he there we go. Every, tonight, everybody needs a foley artist. 
I remember not uh, that our first commission for our Bold New Work series was uh, Laura Connors Hall wanted us to do the turn of the screw and make that a musical. And I was not super into what I, for, when I first read it, I was not into the text. I was not in love with it. But at least Turn of the Screw had an already existing text. Exactly. <laughs> but then I couldn't get into it until I found the one film version that, that was Deborah Carr in The Innocence. Mm -hmm. And then I was in. And then I kind of could see it and could get it. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's I, how I fell in love with it. You know? Yeah, and, and that, that, I think that, that's that's key. I mean, I've had exactly that experience. Um, the Kennedy Center um, asking me to write for a theater for young audiences piece, and it came with a topic because it was part of this White House series that that they they had done, and the my topic was White House pets. And when I was first given, I was first told what that was. I mean, my stomach dropped. I'm like, what? <laughs> you want me to write about what? Um, but then, you know, you, you do the research, you find the stories, you fall in love with the, the, the pets as, and, and create characters out of them. And I love that, that the play is called Unleashed, The Secret Lives of White House Pets. And I love that play now um, because you put the emotional work into the subject matter. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Stephen. Um, you could have had a lot to write about now with Major. Oh, seriously, he's in a lot of trouble these days, naughty boy. I know, but he went through therapy. He's better. Well, I don't, know, I don't know if he could be unleashed. He would have to be leashed. <laughs> he would have to be leashed. <laughs> He's a handful. We love Major, though. Is there is there a is there a, a famous uh, historic uh, fun story about a White House pet? Um, there were several. Um, there was a Thomas Jefferson had a bird that he kept in the Oval Office. Um, and of course, in thinking about that, you know, I'm like, well, how, how do you turn that into a story? And then I'm like, okay, well, if you have a bird flying around the Oval Office, it's gonna poop all over everything. Okay, what if it poops on the Louisiana Purchase map? You know, and how does that change the course of history? Like you just let your brain play with things like that. Um, there was an alligator in the White House, apparently, uh, possibly apocryphally at one point. Um, yeah, there was all kinds of crazy stuff. Alice Roosevelt had a garter snake. <laughs> Beautifully performed by Don Ursula when we did it uh, at the Kennedy Center. Um, but yeah, there's some crazy stuff. Oh, that's fun. Now, you are a faculty member, uh, professor at um, George Washington. That's right. Now, what uh, what is your angle or the, um, what, what do you teach? I know you're going to teach probably writing, but what, what anything specific? Yeah, I teach. Um, I love my course load at GW. I teach uh, play analysis. Um, I teach uh, history of theater, which is a two semester course. And then I teach introduction to dramatic writing or playwriting. Uh, history of theater kind of starts where? Uh, it uh, Well, in antiquity. And that's kind of the fun thing about it, because, you know, the obvious choice is, oh, look at the Greeks. They're sort of the first. Well, were they? You know, as as archaeology uh, 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 learns more um, and we uncover more information, there there are some uh, some wonderful uh, speculations about how far back in prehistory even uh, theatrical expression goes. Uh, there's a lot of what if, but it's it's really fun subject matter. It really is. I love teaching history. Now, do you do you consider yourself in a certain box when you write? As far as like these are my this is my forte or my style or I like to write stories that take place in the south or do you have a genre? I don't and I think that's actually been a little bit of a marketing problem for me professionally because I write across genres. I think the only thing my plays do have in common is they're all gonna make you laugh. Right. Whether they're comedies or, or, or dramas. They, I can't like 
that's just my fallback is, is humor. Um, but I, but no, I write historical dramas and comedies and musicals and uh, uh, kitchen sink realism and fantasy and magical realism. I, I write it all. And I think that from, again, from a, a marketing perspective, that can be difficult uh, to sort of pitch yourself. Um, the sort of elevator pitch that I've come up with about myself is that I write plays that, that will make you laugh until you're crying. Um, and not, 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 you're not laughing. You're, let me, how do I say this? You're crying real tears because the goal is to touch you and move you fundamentally with the stories. Laughing well, along the way. I think I, the harder you make them laugh, the harder you can make them cry. I, I remember when we first met, you had given me, I think it was whiskey and love. Yeah. Love and whiskey. Right. Mm -hmm. um, love and whiskey. Yeah. Um, and I just loved, loved, I fell in love with that piece. And it it was no longer even like, uh, it wasn't even like I was even reading a text. It was almost like as, as I was reading the play, I was actually just seeing a movie. I was no longer really reading. Mm, that makes uh, me happy. It was just really beautiful. Uh, how, how was that inspired? That's a fun story, actually. And um, before I answer that, that question, I'll let you know that it's so interesting that you think of it in filmic terms because uh, my collaborators on that uh, were Jason Lott and um, Michael Skinner. And the three of us have actually drafted a screenplay version of it that we're shopping around right now um, because I think it would be a good movie. The story came from um, the fact that uh, my father's mother, my grandmother, um, kept a diary in the depression and she was you know locked in this isolated farm outside of oxford north carolina with an ailing father she was on again off again with my soon-to-be grandfather uh and uh you know just having a, just having a really rough life and it sounds like she was really struggling with some some serious issues of, of, of depression and isolation but she wrote these terse little tight entries and uh, in this beautiful cursive. And I remember my dad said at one point, gosh, I wish I could read her writing because I, I want to read the whole diary. So I undertook for his birthday one year, and this took me months, um, to transcribe the entire diary's contents into a Word document for him, for him and his sister. Wow. And so, so I could give them like a hard copy of the text that they could read. And in the in the process of writing, of writing down every word she said in these terse entries, I actually smelled out this story, this subtextual story of things that she was really grappling with underneath, you know, I read my Bible today and sewed four squares. Um, and that's where the story came from. And the, the diary features prominently actually in that text. Um, it's sort of, sort of a, a narrative anchor uh, that we keep coming back to as the story moves forward. I love that play. I really love that play. Thank you for liking it, Maddie. Well, you know, I think it's, it really is such a uh, testimonial to when things, you know, they always say, write what you know. But I think when things really not only come from us, but almost go through us. Yes, yes. You know, you, it really it was easy for me to connect because it was clearly a very, um, it came from a, you know, a, a very deep soul and uh you know, someone once said, I read somewhere once that we look at our pieces of art as they are, like they are our children. Mm -hmm. And they encouraged us to not think of those things as children, that we are actually the children in the reverse of the creative art form. Like almost like the art form or the, the play is the parent is actually the parent. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a fascinating uh, switch switcheroo. 
it's a beautiful way to think about it. It really is. Yeah. And I, I think of, you know, I am a parent, so I think of that a lot with art um, and the relationship between what I create and myself. And, you know, when you have children, you, they come from you, but they have their own lives and develop their own priorities and characteristics and values as, as they move forward through life. And I almost think of plays doing the same thing that they, that they, they come from you, but they exist separately from you. Right, 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 right. I think, I think of it as like, not only do I have a son, but because I am a son, it's almost like a connecting the dots rather than an A and B segment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, Stephen, you, you want to call in right now? Yeah, I would love to ask a question. Um, what, tell me about the welders. How did the welders get formed? What, what's the story with the welders? I will talk about the welders uh, for hours if you let me. So stop me if, if I go on too long. Um, the welders is in, it's currently in its third iteration, its third group of welders. Um, the, I was a founding member of the uh, original cohort, um, which included uh, Jojo Roof, Gwydion Sullivan, Bob Bartlett, Colleen Jennings, and Renee Calarco. And basically, we came together in, in conversation as playwrights and, and generative artists out of frustration that, that playwrights are the, in so many ways, the, uh, the least empowered theatrical artists. They certainly have the fewest opportunities. There are just mathematically more opportunities for directors than there are for playwrights. There are more, certainly more opportunities for actors and for designers and stage managers than there are for playwrights. So that's just, that's just math. Um, and we were like, okay, what can we do? What can we do that will uh, sort of smash through some of the gatekeeping in and around new play development and empower the playwrights? And we, you know, we talked for, gosh, a couple of years, but a year and a half, I think, two years about this before we finally came up with our solution to this, at least for ourselves in DC. We wanted to build something for Washington, DC that was gonna have a life after us. We did not want to be accused in any way, shape or form of vanity production and only doing our own work. Um, so we came up with this model that we would produce over a three-year period of time, one play by each member playwright um, collaboratively. So I was the first playwright to get produced by the Welders, my play, uh, The Carolina Layaway Grail, um, uh, which was um, really fun to do and a wonderful experiment. But I was the canary in the coal mine because I was the first one to right. come out. Um, and in, in my three years as a working welder, I had one play produced that's it so that means four fifths of my time as a welder was spent producing the work of my fellow playwrights in that cohort mm -hmm. and then the elegant solution that i've got to give full credit to Gwydion for this because he's the one who came up came up with it he said what if the end of the period of time we hand the entire organization off to a new set of playwrights and then they will hand it on when they're done and so forth um, so Welders 2.0 was uh, applied, um, was one of the groups that applied and was chosen. They took over, they did their bit, they produced their plays, they've done their fantastic work. Uh, and then they chose the next cohort, uh, Welders 3.0 as we're calling them, um, who are, you know, of course have been sidelined a bit as everyone has by the pandemic, um, but they're going to produce some fantastic work and it's coming up soon. And I'm really pleased to say uh, that I am now on the board of welders for 3.0. So my commitment um, and engagement with the welders and that phenomenal, fantastic mission uh, continues. And I'm really proud. It's, it's probably the thing, I, one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is being a founding member of the welders and helping create that for 
now three generations of playwrights and for Washington, D.C. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Now, Allie, what is the process of doing a Okay, we're going to write a play. It's in my computer now. This person wants to direct it at this theater and it gets produced and an audience comes and sees it. How does it then become uh, published in one of those cute little books that you get? Well, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I've, I've written a lot of work and some of it's published, but not, not most of it. Um, I don't really know. I think that's one of those unanswerable questions because I think one problem, a massive institutional problem with new play development is that, and, and you know, National New Play Network has been trying to combat this with its rolling world premiere solution, but it's hard for a play, a new play, to get a second and third and fourth production. Mm -hmm. It's easier to get a world premiere than it is to get follow-up productions. That's a problem uh, because all the theaters want world premiere uh, bragging rights to new work, but no, very few theaters are willing to step up and pick up a good text, a proven text that's new uh, in second and third and fourth iterations. So that's the challenge that I have faced consistently in my career, and I am, I know I am not the only person. Well, um, this is a common, common complaint amongst my peers. I, I wish regional premiere was a bigger deal. Yeah. You know what I mean, I wonder, could, could the welders become their own publishing company and just start basically um, publishing their own work? And if people wanted to do it, they just reached out to the welders? That is so like you to come up with some fantastic solution like that. Uh, that that's really a cool idea. No, we hadn't even discussed that. You know, we'd sort of, I mean, being a welder, at least in my generation, um, you know, you it was so much work. I mean, because you're doing everything. You're doing the admin, you're doing the fundraising, you're doing the PR, you're doing the producing, you're doing the casting. I mean, the, the, the finances, everything. Uh, so, and it's just so much work to do that um, as a cohort that when we passed it off, I think all of us kind of needed to nap for a year. Um, but, but I think that's actually a really great idea. I, I wonder, well, can I steal that idea, Maddie, and run well, with it? Well, yeah, I'm thinking like I see someone in the group who has great IT skills to create the, the welders, um, whatever it's called, page on um, online, uh, um, their website, and mm -hmm. then everything is there and you could you know then put up photographs and different blurbs about each person's show and then find a way of how that money gets divvied out between the keeping the welders uh, publishing thing up and then of course giving uh, the artists their share but you could be like the first Washington DC like publishing house for playwrights that's such a cool idea and would give you such uh, another thing to like talk about in the paper to get another momentum for people to donate or to, it would like create like its own little, um, what would you call that in Chicago or New York, New York, like a publisher's guild or something? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A publishing house, yeah. Well, let's talk about, let's talk more about the Silver Bells. Yes. Yay, Silver Bells. We are the... Speaking, Speaking of needing a second, third, fourth, fifth production. Right? <laughs> it's like the perfect holiday musical. It, it, should, it should be done everywhere. It's a small cast musical. It can be done with just a piano or a small combo. It's, it's 
you know, I, I think Signature originally asked for, what did they say, Maddie? Golden Girls meets Six Feet Under? Isn't that the original thing that was asked for? I think that sounds right, yeah. Uh, I Yeah, I think I, I, it's, I don't, it's just, it's a great holiday musical. And of course, what's, Stephen, go ahead. I, I just, I just wanted to comment that, of course, our Christmas show has a coffin center stage at the top of the show. It's very, very much in, on brand for me and Matthew, but, <laughs> but, but the humor that, that you were able to bring in in the scene work, like really helped seal it. Um, I think we were able to come up with some funny lyrics, um, but that, that show is licensed in New York. Yes. Um, through Broadway licensing. Broadway mm-hmm. licensing. Yay. So if you're listening and you want a free Connor and Smith hoodie <laughs> produce, produce our show, it comes with Allie, two pugs. Uh, <laughs> okay, but I think, honestly, that we are, I think that right now we are moving from like a, a world of getting, um, reading scripts in our hand, which of course I love, to this whole new brand new digital age where you know people are not even looking at headshots and resumes they're looking at facebook and like googling your credits yes yeah and i really feel like if we look at that and think about what we are what the technology that we're using in our life has got to be applied to the same technology that we're using in our arts because people aren't going to find us we'll be buried way 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 into google searches right and one, one of the things I thought about Silver Bells didn't have that it needed was some sort of uh, demo or audio thing that you could really listen to some of the book and some of the songs um, that you could really kind of get it out there. Well, uh, they did that a little bit on, on, with Broadway licensing. I mean, Steve, you're singing, right? And, and Donna? Um, some oh, excerpts of the song. Do that, just some snippets of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think you know, the, the the real problem here is that, and this is true of new plays. It's true of new musicals. It's true of the Silver Bells. It's true. There is so much new play content out there that it's overwhelming, um, and that that you know even with the National Play Exchange (NPX). Um, which is a fantastic database. I've got a page on there. A bunch of us do. You can go read my full scripts on when you go visit my page on MPX. That's lovely. But there are, I think, over 10,000 scripts on there right now. Um, I mean, it's just there's how do you how do you narrow the beam of your search um, right. when there's just so much stuff out there? And when I was reading scripts for theaters back in the day uh, to sort of help the script selection, um, and this is another problem of the business there. And I still, I say this without trying to be ugly, but there's a lot of stuff out there that you have to, you have to dig through a lot of junk to get to, to find anything good. Yeah. There's a lot of n- bad new play stuff out there and, and there's a volume of it. There's a great right. volume of it. And I don't say that again, don't say that to be ugly. I, that's from my experience as a reader. Um, and so that, what that does for people who are searching for new plays is it, makes them have to wade through a lot of bad stuff to get to good stuff. And that is demoralizing (laughs) that right there. Right. It's almost like the internet has helped to add to this sort of amateur hour, because if you have a a computer, you can, you know, do anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel 
that a little bit in the composing world too, because you know, if you've got a garage band act, you're all of a sudden a composer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yep. Well, I remember one thing that me and Allie did, and see, I'll get you to say, what? We're just here talking on the couch with two sleeping pugs. It's fine. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> I remember when me or you, when you were working on Silver Bells, uh, before we brought Stephen or Warren into the room that at times we really got more inspiration out of being together than yes. did actually being apart. Yes. And that took us a while to figure out too, because I mean, as I said, at the beginning of this conversation, you and I didn't know each other. We were put together as a creative team and it took us a while to figure out how we work together. And yeah. we did not work well separately. We yeah. had to be together in the room you know, just bouncing ideas off of each other and laughing our butts off. And Matt would hop up and act crap out and I'd be typing stuff in. And it would just, and that's, we had to be together to create the thing. Um, and that's not how I've often worked with other collaborators. Every collaboration is a different flavor, you know? Um, and and that's, I, I, I love that about, and then when Steve and Warren came in, sort of the same deal, right? We just, we were, we were best together in the room. Um, and we could go separately for, you know, do our, our solo work for, you know, fine tuning, but for big ideas and big impulses, we really did need to be together there in the room. And that's a, f a great, fun way to collaborate. I'll tell you. Even had a, a kind of a really cool idea at one point about the show. And I'm not sure if he is going to get mad that I'm bringing this up and say, why did you say that? Um, but Stevie at one point saw it would be kind of neat to have uh, a prequel to Silver Bells. Yes. And, and we see all of them in their youth when they're actually kind of play acting and and sort of like the, um, um, not the kids in It. That's, that might have, when, who, who are the kids I'm thinking of? Um, the Little Rascals? I mean, like, yeah, kind of thing. But these, <laughs> these kids that are, you know, old enough to, to know better, but, you know, maybe do these plays and stuff in their backyard or whatever. They're so creative that kind of eventually led to them all being... Um, the Silver Bells group or something, yeah. and you could either do Act Act One and Act Two together because you see kind of how it started, and then the then the Silver Bells proper, or do one or the other. Yeah, I I, I love that, and I, you know what what I what I love about that is one of my favorite things about art in general is is how much it's needed everywhere, and it doesn't matter your community, it doesn't matter if you're in a teeny tiny town. In, in, in Tennessee, as the Silver Bells were, or if you're in a big, you know, theater busting to the seams metropolis, um, it, you know, that, that people have a fundamental need for artistic expression at every level. And uh, that idea would very much celebrate that. I'm very drawn to that. Well, I just kept thinking of that. There's a song that we love the, that's from that show that's uh, While the Getting is Good. And there's a lyric that's Orlean and Earl uh, sing about uh, it would that we could start again when I was eight and you were, you 10, were 10 or whatever. And I thought, I want to see them at that age. I want to know what that story is about. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to see young Orlean, Miss Bossy Pants, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and just kind of the journey of that and what, what kind of rich history, like if you had, you know, heaven help us, if, if a theater wanted to do. <laughs> our show that's on a unit set with a small cast. Hello, theaters. That's what people need right now. Yep. Sponsored by Broadway Licensing. The Silver Bells. Exactly. Um, if, if you had that unit set, could you 
write something that it was almost like a Saturday, Sunday morning companion piece for like, if the theater had a youth program, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Wouldn't that be a brilliant way of like, you can make money from this twice. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, th you know, that's, that's what, one thing I love about pairing with you two is that you have the, you have those ideas like that. You, you have the marketing side of your brain a little more developed than I do. Uh, and so, you know, I love that, that, we that your skills in that way and in many ways, but in certainly in that way, complement uh, mine and make up for some of my deficiencies. I think that's a really cool idea, Stephen. Well, because all of us on this podcast right now have already created these characters that we fell in love with, uh, I think now sort of going back and telling a, a different, a more of a backstory of them. It wouldn't be necessarily easy, but we would basically be going back and like visiting our friends. I mean, you know, the, just the deliciousness of all the characters. Um, or even it, how fun it would be to lay the history of why they became how they are in Silver Bells. I mean, we could we could start like right now with Bojack. Like what? Is, oh, I love who, Bojack. Who was Bojack? Like when, when she was, you know, in her teens. Yeah. I mean, you know, was she was the one that was sort of the, the tomboy already. Um, or, yeah. was she, or was she being made to wear dresses and look pretty? And she all she knew that at any time she was going to grow up and I don't know, become yeah. somebody different. Yeah. And Lona's character, what was her character name? Uh, Bernice. Bernice. Oh my god! Oh my god. Can you imagine her as a kid? Oh my, oh my god. god, that'd be hysterical. Well, that's the thing about you know about creating rich characters is that you can live with them for so long. Well, she would definitely be still involved in some sort of animal world, right? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then there was Peggy's character, which was Ruth Ann. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So Ruth Ann was, we kind of made her sort of like uh, your, not, I don't want to say pageant girl, but didn't she do a baton and like a little bit of a dance? Yeah. Yeah. She was our pageant girl. She was, uh, what was it? Miss, uh, oh gosh. What was the, t oh, she won a title. I don't know. Something about fish. <laughs> Miss oh, Trout right. or something. That's I don't right. know what and it was. Then of course, and then of course, of course, Earl and Orlean, uh, maybe they, maybe one of them had a crush on the other, but the other one didn't. And there's a conflict there. And, yeah. and there's, there's young Nova's character, who I can't remember the name of. Stephen, did you invite Allie on this podcast so we can start writing another show? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yay. He, he feels like this is a setup. <laughs> <laughs> if it is, I like it. No, I just remembered talking to you that Stephen at one point was weird. Me and Stephen, of course, live together. So, I mean, we almost always are throwing 10 ideas out at any given time of like, hey, I mean, we were driving here from the gym today and I was like, I think I'm going to take my mom in the recording studio and, and, and give her a Christmas album. <laughs> Love it. Something she could have forever. Anyway, um, we can keep talking about this. And, and thank you for the breaking news for our audience that we live together. I don't know if anyone put that together yet. <laughs> well, I'll I'm tell shocked, you shocked. I'll tell you this much. I have a twin brother and no one knew that we were brothers, even much less twins, until uh, the baccalaureate service. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? Yeah, my tw there were friends that did not know we were brothers. Uh, oh until, until we were seated beside one another like, oh my God, it's Matt and Mark. Oh my gosh. Breaking news from 1985. <laughs> well, speaking as the mother of twins, I find that mind boggling. Well, we, me and Mark don't really, didn't really look a whole lot like brothers. We didn't really even look like friends. 
we we put the fraternal in fraternal. Okay. You put the frat in fraternal. How are the girls? The girls are amazing. They're doing so well. I cannot be more proud of them. Um, they graduated from Wake in 2019, uh, both with honors. I'm super proud of them. And um, they're working here in D.C. now. Um, although they're both, um, uh, one is going to graduate school um, in the fall and the other is, is um, uh, she's got a really great job, but she really wants to get on the Hill. So we're sort of wrangling all that, but uh, they're doing really, really well. That is fantastic to hear. Yeah. Now, um, Allie, are you currently like working on anything that you want to talk about that's coming out? Do you have any other breaking news other than the Welders? Congratulations to being on the board. Thank you. Um, you, you know, I, I'm trying very hard not to beat myself up for uh, my pandemic malaise. I'm trying to remind myself, not to remind myself that Shakespeare wrote Lear during that plague time and he used his time well and I really haven't used my time well in that regard. Um, I found this, you know, the, the, the quarantine pandemic uh, situation very, very difficult. Um, teaching was more challenging, everything. It's not, I mean, and this is true for everybody. There's nothing, you know, this is not breaking news. Um, I do have a couple projects that are, um, I just started a new play, um, just started. I mean, I think about five pages of dialogue. I've got another comedy that uh, hasn't even had a reading yet, um, but I'm getting ready to market that around a little bit. It's about a backstage history of, uh, of a CBS soap opera from the 1980s to the 2000s, and it's really funny. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm working on a piece, or getting ready to work on a piece with Psalm, so I'm doing research for that. Um, and, uh, I guess the only, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I just started this, I'm researching that I'm chopping this around. There's a lot of that right now in, in, uh, in, in my life. Um, the only other item of breaking news, I guess, is that, um, I have been asked to take over, uh, in an interim capacity, uh, the MFA program in playwriting at Catholic university, uh, when John Klein retires from his position there. So um, I'll, be, I'll be working both at GW and at Catholic um, uh, in the, starting in the fall, um, advising their playwriting students and, and, then, and teaching playwriting there. So um, it's going to be a very, very, very full teaching load. But I'm, I'm excited. I've never run an MFA program. Um, so I'm looking forward to stretching some, I guess, some admin muscles there um, and, uh, you know, working a little more dramaturgically with students. Um, so there's so there's kind of a you know a, a whole smorgasbord of things. I'm I'm just glad to say that as lazy lazy is the wrong word as uh, maybe creatively incapacitated as I've been during COVID, uh, I am relieved to at least say I have things in the works. I am working on stuff. I'm in the, immersed in some really interesting research on on a couple projects. So there are things in the works, but uh, nothing late and breaking. Congratulations. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, I, it's, can't it's, wait, I can't wait for Catholic to do the first act of Silver Bells. There we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to line them all up tonight. Heck yeah. Um, Allie, I, I, I'm just curious um, about what you said there with your pandemic malaise about writing and creating. I, too, experienced that. Um we did. We were working on a piece before the pandemic hit for a while called uh, Whitechapel, 
Um, it's about the five women that Jack the Ripper killed. Yeah, and, and you and you read the five too. That great book about it that, that yeah. I, I mentioned to you. Yeah, it's yes, and 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 it, it was it was really hard for me to keep getting inspired because I'm so visual with inspiration. Like I need to look at a million things. I need to walk around. I, I swear to God, if you put me in some kind of booth with like blinking lights and sound, I would probably be fine. I just need some kind of like color palettes and different stuff. Um, and I miss, you know, Matthew and I, especially when we're writing, writing something, we would go out to dinner and talk about it outside of the house without the house distractions and right. the, the beloved puppies and everything else. We would go, go for walks. We would go look at things that would be, you know, of the same kind of ilk as what we were working on. And it would just inspire, you know, go to the museum. Um, and you kind of collect images and little bits in your head that eventually start to stick together and become dialogue and plot and everything. And this is the truth. I actually set up um, different color neon lights and other different things in my basement that through the course of the day, oh, it's one o'clock, I turn on this one. Oh, and then they add up that when I'm done with my day job, I get to walk amongst all these blinking and strange neon lights. And that somehow gave me inspiration, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. No, if it works, it works. I swear to God, it's the, it's, it's different with everybody. And and I can remember being in, uh, oh God, a world market and looking at, you know, and I love, I love me some world market. First of all, of course, really cute stuff from around the world. But I remember just a few different objects that were near each other on a shelf that I then rearranged and took a picture of became the inspiration for something else. And that's just kind of like, I don't know, the the weird creative fuel that I get. What is your way of creatively fueling yourself? Is yours more organic? Do you, what's your kind of process? Well, you know, it's really interesting what you said about staying home. Because, uh, you know, when, when I'm at home, I've, I've crafted a, a home that makes me happy, right? With things that I think are beautiful, that th- things that mean something to me. And it, it's a nice little nest. And the problem with a nice little nest is it doesn't really challenge you. Um, you know, like I will literally color code my closet to avoid writing. Like I will do like anything, right? So, so getting out of the house is crucial for me too. I have to be in other places that where there's dedicated time and there's, I mean, not always, but, but very, very often there's dedicated time and silence and I'm not around my pets and my phone's not ringing and I can just indulge in creative play in my own brain. I don't, I'm not a visual person like you. Um, I'm very much I'm just words, 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 and history. Those are kind of my, my, my uh, access points very often um, uh, for, and, and dreams too, I guess, some dr- dreams that I've had as well. Um, sometimes I, you know, I dramatize my own dreams just for fun because it's, they, they're pretty interesting dreams. Um, I think that it's, it's really important to give yourself, or for me anyway, to give myself dream time. Um, and coupled with that deadlines, and there's two things I'm very antithetical, uh, and indeed they are in a lot of ways, dream time and deadlines. They are the opposite. Um, but in the absence of a deadline, I will get nothing done. So that's why I have to have set external deadlines with other people. And I will have this draft to you by so-and-so um, and set that deadline because without that, I won't get anything done. But I also need to have time to play. And and so, and you don't know, sometimes 
in, in our normal days, you know, you don't know when that's going to happen. I've told this story a thousand times, but once I was down at, in J Street, which is like was the GW's, like um, basically their their you know all, where all their restaurants are for the students and stuff like that. And I'd gotten a soda or something, and I went to get a straw back before we all stopped using straws. And the box of straws was sitting there with only one straw in it. And I was like, oh, and so I just stopped and stared at the straw for a minute. I was like, oh, it's the last straw. Like thinking <laughs> of the phrase, like it's the last straw. It's the last straw. I'm done, right? I was thinking about the last straw. The last straw. Why would it be the last straw? Can't we go get another box of straws? <laughs> and I just started like, like musing on the stupid one straw that was sticking out of a box. And I'm sure people thought I was insane standing there in J Street full, full of all these college students just staring at this box with one straw in it. But as silly as it was, and that it, it sounds like it's a silly example, but it's not. Because what it did, I was like, what can I do with this idea that I can't literally stop looking at a literal embodiment of, of a, a metaphor or, or like the, the, the or phrase, like the last straw. And what I did with it was like, I know what to do with it. I had this character in a play about an artist colony who's an artistic director and I couldn't quite make her character work. And she's, like, she's the artistic director. She's the visionary, right? She's the leader. I'm like, what if she can only think literally? She wouldn't understand the phrase, the last straw. She would think it was a last straw in a box. And it actually ended up solving this massive, massive problem of character that became this hysterical revelation at the end of the play when people learn that she, she's an artist who can't think, who can't think <laughs> outside the literal. And it's, it sounds silly, but it, it turned, turned out that it solved this huge, huge, huge problem for me dramaturgically and character-wise because I sat there for five or 10 minutes or whatever in a busy place, just staring at a box with a straw in it. So that's kind of what I mean by playtime and dream time. And you can craft that time. You can go on a retreat, go to a lake house somewhere if you're able and do all that good stuff. Or you can seize the moments of musing when they hit you, whether that's an inconvenient time or not. And I find that those are the kind of my two definitions of dream time that, that, and that helps me the most. And that's where I generate the most interesting raw material for myself. First off, I want to say that your book on writing is Dream Time and Deadlines. Oh, yes. Um, second of all, you staring at that straw, you know what any one of those kids in that restaurant would have done? If they realized that same phrase and connected it with the visual, they would have taken a picture and it would be a meme and that's where it would end. <laughs> but, oh, thank God. Thank God nobody took a picture. Yeah, I mean, but you took it and turned That's what... That's what I love about talking to, to writers about how we think of things and store things away and kind of pull from our weird, you know, fish hook box and kind of pull strings out and form, you know, universes with them. You know? And it is weird. And it is weird. And it's supposed to be weird. And you need to embrace the weird, mm -hmm. you know, and you, and you can't run away from it. You can't be embarrassed about it. You got to be a little weird and, and, and own it. I, it's a big part of being any kind of creative, I think. Yeah, totally. I feel like every writer always is sort of like making their own homemade spices and they're putting them in little jars and they may not be using them right then and there, but they're making making their own like spice rack when it's, you know, when they need stuff, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Well, we love you very much. We always kind of close with three questions. Okay. Now...
Stephen Gregory's going to surprise you with the last question, which is, um, what, do you, what, do you, what would you like to wish for? So that put that on the back burner. Okay. But I want to know during this COVID year, crazy year and year plus now, um, lots of people started learning things. I'm going to learn how to bake bread. I'm going to learn how not to bake bread. I'm going to learn how to not eat bread. <laughs> Did you take any sort of learning thing? Did you learn a new language? You know, I don't have that kind of discipline. I <laughs> um, no, I did. I guess what I what I focused on learning was enriching what I already know. If that makes any sense, um, sure. I, I did. I, I did a lot of. Uh, I love history, and I, I've read, done some fantastic reading on on world history. Just sort of enlarging my horizons and there, and trying to you know break out of accepted narratives of history. Uh, and, and learn some untold stories and do some digging uh, for, for, for those types of stories. So that, because that enriches me as a writer, as an artist, and also as a teacher. Um, so that, that's the, I think the main thing that I dedicated myself to and to, you know, and also the, the, the good news, bad news about not writing in pandemic is that I think it made me, because I wasn't writing, I was like, okay, well, what can I do? And sometimes teaching scratches the same itch as, as creating. Um, and I worked really hard to expand some of my content for my classes with new research, new topics, and new things like that. So I think rather than do, some, do something new, I spent my time enriching what I already have and deepening that to try to make me a better artist in person and teacher. During this time, did you binge watch any series that you would have maybe never even made time for, but was like, oh my God, I watched this? Oh my, I've done so much binge watching. It's almost pathetic. Um, I've got a really, I've kept and maintained a really well curated list of shows and movies um, from my friends whose taste I really respect and admire. And I've been chipping away at that very, very, very lengthy um, uh, 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 list. And I've just, you know, I'm, I, I just started, well, I'm just, there's, there's tons of great stuff. Um, but I had never, and I know I'm late to the party on this, but I'd never watched Broadchurch, for instance, which was, geez, God, the acting, it's phenomenal. Um, and things like that. So I did a, an absurd amount of binge watching of, of television. Again, trying to concentrate on a lot of documentaries, uh, a lot of really uh, quality, quality material um, with that, that explored stories and experiences that um, maybe I don't have so much knowledge of. So again, trying to just make my understanding of the world bigger. Yeah, I started that, uh, and I know the listeners have heard this story over and over again, but I did that whole story like, oh, let's see what the big deal is about the crown. And <laughs> because I also am fascinated with history, especially the older I get, I was just hooked from the beginning because every episode was like, oh my God, did that really happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I, you, you sent me to a couple. Um, you sent me, uh, oh gosh, uh, was it called 13th? Yep. That documentary. I watched that on your recommendation. It was really, really fa fascinating history. I'm really glad I watched it. Yeah. I, um, I stumbled across a documentary about, it was a murder in the Mormon church. Oh, Hey, that's on my list. Is that, I haven't started it though. It's I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's fascinating. And then I want to watch one that's, I think, called 1946, the year. I mean, it's just called 1946, but it's the year that somewhere in the church world, they added the word 
homosexual to the Bible mm. and the history of how and why and how that was all sort of manhandled, if you will. Oh, don't need to start me on that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, you know, even the whole, I mean, it just it, that whole Levit- Leviticus translation, the original translation is, is just wrong. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it, it says man shall not lie. A man shall not lie with boy is what it says. Yeah. And, and it gets mistranslated. Man shall not lie with man. There's there's not. I mean, don't even start me. That, that kind of mistranslation is why words matter. Right. Uh, it results in, you know, in, in centuries and centuries of, of homophobia in the church. It's, yeah. Don't I just me. binged um, the entire five episode series of Halston over the weekend. I'm just starting that. I love you and McGregor. It is. He is incredible. It is incredible. Um, and then there's a really good documentary that's on Amazon Prime about Halston as well that was done the year before this was made. So I wonder if, uh, you know, Ryan Murphy watched that documentary and then was like, oh, yeah, let's do Halston. I've seen that documentary, too. Yeah, that's a good love one. It. Love it. Yeah. Uh, Okay, well, finally, Ali, uh, it, so we, this is a fun kind of synchronicitous um, occasion. So today, Matt is, of course, producing Susan Derry's uh, upcoming album, I Wish It So. And I, I'm a record producer. Yes. Yay, yes. And it just wrapped in the studio this afternoon. We're actually, Congratulations. Yeah, we're actually going over to Susan and John's um, rooftop deck. Uh, to celebrate the rap and so anyway we started talking about wishes and the power of wishes and what wishes really mean and so I made this wish box to receive wishes from everyone who is on our podcast I asked them if they had one thing to wish for in the world or what whatever it is what would it be oh my lord I have 15,000 things I want to wish for um, I, I, if I'm thinking more sort of big picture and globally, um, as opposed to selfishly, uh, you know, I, I just, I really wish, I really wish we lived in a more tolerant place. I really do. I think it would solve so many problems. And right now, you know, there's just, I, it's hard to turn the news on right now, you know, with, with everything that's going on in the world. And it, I just, and everybody's had such a hard time in pandemic. I think if everybody just, just took a deep breath and understood that everybody has gone through hell this past year and a half. Everybody has had a hard time. And let's just be tolerant and be nice to each other and give people the benefit of the doubt. That's what I think I would wish for right now in this moment. Absolutely. That's, that's so well put. Thank you for that. Then may it happen. Yeah. All right, friend. Well, we love you very much. We're so glad we got to spend this time together. And I love you too. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. Yeah, we we'll hope to see talk to you soon. I'll come over anytime. We can work. Well, I've got the Pfizer in, in me. Me too. I've got the Pfizer in me. And I got the Moderna in me. That's right. <laughs> a little bit of country, a little bit of rock and roll. I actually at one point wanted to get, uh, after I got the Pfizer, I wanted to get the Moderna and then the J&J and sort of write a review. There you go. Traveler's Guide. Traveler's <laughs> Guide. Right, throw a third eyeball but you know <laughs> but it's for science so it's okay right right all, all right, right. We, we love you ali love you too have have a good time tonight congrats on the album thanks, thanks. thank you bye bye
So great to catch up with Ali. Oh my god, so many new ideas. I want that kid show version of Silver Bells, like the prequel. That would be amazing. Yeah, that is kind of an interesting idea. Um, it was so great to talk to her. I miss her a lot because, you know, she's been to our house. I've been to her house. We used to hang out together. I have not been to her house. So I'm awaiting that invitation. Um, so Ali, come on. We're all vaccinated. Let's do it. I haven't um, been to her house since I've been vaccinated. Well, we've been nowhere, well, not many places since we've been vaccinated, but we're all vaccinated, and you should get vaccinated too. True. So, as we always say, turn, turn your, your heart, heart into, into art. art. Good night, everybody.